Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today episode 54 of the bowery boys creating central park hey it's the bowery boys hey the bowery boys is brought to you by eurocheapo.com eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in europe now with hotels in new york city on the web at eurocheapo.com Hello there, and welcome to the Bowery Boys. My name is Greg Young. And I'm Tom Myers. And we're glad that you're with us on this summer podcast day. And like everyone else in New York City, we're all going up to Central Park. We're we're going to take off to the park today and explore the history behind what is arguably one of New York's most famous attractions. Well, it's one of the biggest tourist attractions. It's The city couldn't uh, survive without Central Park. Not only is it, of course, the heart of the city, as they also call it, it's the lungs of New York City as well. And it was designed really to give residents a place to breathe, you know, but also designed to give people a place to escape to. As we'll see, one of the Maybe the major conflict of Central Park is, who is it really for? The philosophies behind it kind of shift uh, as the city itself shifts. Now, there's so much about Central Park. We could actually do four or five continuous podcasts on the history of Central Park. You know, there's so many things inside of it that people know about and love. You know, we've already done Central Park Zoo as one separate podcast, and there's a few other things in there that could get their own show. We're going to talk generally about the history of it, the creation, the philosophies behind it, the construction, and then the evolutions of it as the city itself changed. So join us as we dig a little into the history of Central Park. So, Greg, before we just dive into the park and into the backstory, will you just kind of generally tell us, situate us in well, this park? Well, mo- you know, if you, most people know where Central Park is, even those who've never been to New York City. But I'll tell you anyway, the park is it's a 51-block deep park that goes from 59th Street up to 110th Street on north and south, mm-hmm. and then over on 5th Avenue over to 8th Avenue. And it has a perimeter of six miles. It is 843 acres of parkland. Wow, that's a lot. It's, it is indeed. It's, of course, Manhattan's largest park. But, Tom, did you realize it's only the fifth largest park in the New York City area? But when it was built, though, it was built in, in the city of New York, in, in which, Manhattan. Which was Manhattan, so obviously it was the biggest park in uh, New York at the time. It is, of course, the most visited park in all of the United States, with uh, between 25 to 27 million visitors annually. 
If you walked on all the pedestrian paths throughout Central Park, it would be 58 miles. Wow. There are 36 different bridges, each one uniquely designed, 9,000 benches, 26,000 trees, 21 playgrounds. It's extremely ecologically diverse. It's, of course, a famous place for bird watchers. There are, in fact, 275 species of migratory birds that make their way through Central Park. All sorts of activities go on here from boating, ice skating, baseball, fishing, you name it, it goes on in Central Park. There are, of course, sculptures all over the place. Sculptures of famous men, one famous dog, no sculptures <laughs> of any famous women. Did you know that? Seriously? There are fictional There are fictional women. There's Juliet, there's Mother Goose, there's Alice in Wonderland. There's not any statues of women that actually lived on the earth. Wow. Well, hopefully that will change in our lifetime. We're not in a sculpture culture, but I, we <laughs> if might, you will. if you will, but we might see that happening in our lifetimes. Now, let, let me give you a quick little walking tour, please, of please. the various major parts of Central Park. Now, on the southeast corner, if you were to walk around the area, you would find things like the Central Park Zoo, mm-hmm. which you know this very is well, d- the Fifth Avenue side, the Fifth Avenue side. There would also be the Dairy, which is now today a visitor center and a gift shop for stuff in Central Park-themed stuff, items. Um, And, of course, there's that picturesque pond that everyone takes their picture by. Of course. Now, the southwest corner of the park, the one over by the 8th Avenue side, that, 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 of course, has the famous Sheep's Meadow, which back in the day really did have sheep on it. Color-coded sheep, believe it or not. Color-coded sheep? Yeah, well, sheep that were all the same color, that they would contrast nicely with the grass in which they were eating. It's very funny. Um, Tavern on the Green, the famous restaurant, is over there. And Strawberry Fields, the nice little garden area that was as a tribute to John Lennon. And that only takes us up to 72nd Street. And that's only 72nd Street. Now, the center of the park, if you will, is sort of the most wild area. They call it the Rambles. This, in this area, they have a lake and a boathouse, and the center of the park, which is what they call the Bethesda Fountain. Mm-hmm. It's a very formal English fountain area. Farther up, there's the Metropolitan Museum of Art on the east, with, of course, its very recognizable Cleopatra's Needle, that mm-hmm. obelisk that they brought over from Egypt. On the west side, by the way, the, the Natural History Museum is peeking into the park, but it's not actually in the park. Right. Around this area also, we have the Delacorte Theater, where they have Shakespeare in the park. And right next to that is the, that charming little fairy tale Belvedere Castle. And out in front of that, the Great Lawn. Now, if you go to the north part of Central Park, it's dominated, of course, by what today is called the Jackie Kennedy Onassis Reservoir. Mm-hmm. Um, there is some rougher terrain up in the most northern parts, um, a little higher elevations. In this part, you have the what they call the Harlem Mirror, which is a, another little body of water, and the Blockhouse, which was actually the remains of an old fort from the War of 1812, which, is, of course, was never used. And then finally, of course, you have that beautiful formal conservatory garden, that British garden that's up there, and then finally what they call the North Meadow and the Great Hill. And what's amazing about the whole landscape is it all just literally seems like, well, that must have been what it was like for right. thousands of years, like the whole area. And the mountains and the occasional peak, the cliff. But in fact, 
and it's so hard for me to believe even now when you're walking through it that the whole thing every inch of the land was landscaped mm. and that in fact everything around this area well every, you know, everywhere in Central Park looked completely different before the park was there and that's what makes this podcast interesting <laughs> we hope because <laughs> I guess if it looked the same then we wouldn't have a story <laughs> then we'd be done yeah. as peaceful as that land is it's also it's pretty packed with features there's t- there's so much there's so many things to do i mean you can it's so easy to get lost in central park that if we didn't have a skyline around it you could literally get lost there for hours perhaps that was the original intention because of course back in the day there were no skyscrapers but that's i guess yes. where we're going here where do they even i mean it's so big you just can't imagine how did they even come up with an idea to create a park so massive and an, on an island where the city's growing up in this direction Right. Well, to answer that, we need to flip back to the Randall plan, if you will, the grid plan that we talked about, we've yes, talked about before. The commissioner's plan. Of 1811. Suddenly, this grid structure was imposed on the island of Manhattan. And one thing notably missing from this plan was a great park or even many smaller parks. There just really wasn't much breathing room. The, in the, the, yeah, the original map just looks ridiculous. The I mean, there's little tiny plazas right. here and there, like this little dots like measles there what there aren't any like actual open areas especially certainly nothing as big as central park and by this point you know in the early 1800s people were getting the measles and people were <laughs> needing you know as waves of immigration came to new york and apartment buildings were really getting packed downtown. People needed a place to stretch out. They needed to have an area for recreation. They needed to breathe some fresh air. New York didn't offer that at this time. Battery Park had deteriorated oh, sure. you know, into this sort of foul wasteland. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the waterfront isn't like it is today. I mean, things were just built all the way up to the water, and then there were just docks and boats. Those That certainly wasn't a respite for citizens of the city. No, there was no, you know, bike path going up Battery Park <laughs> City. Not uh, quite. It didn't exist at the time. Not quite. New York just didn't compare to the other big cities. In 1850, for instance, mm-hmm. London had 1,400, more than 1,400 acres of parks, right? That's 500 acres for every 100,000 inhabitants. New York had 100 acres of parks total, which was only six acres for every 100,000 people. So yeah, London like, <laughs> whooped New York in this uh-huh. respect. And it was, again, a major health issue. So something mm-hmm. had to be done. Now, in 1844, William Cullen Bryant, who was the editor of the New, New York, York Evening, Evening Post, Post, of course, our right. friend, our old pal, William, he went on a crusade to change this. He believed that in this increasingly loud city of New York, that the city needed a place for its citizens to find solitude and that the park could be what he called the lungs of the city. Oh, right. That's where I got that from. (laughs) He said it first. (laughs) He thought that it could also combat not only the disease that we talked about, but also he saw a more paternalistic aspect to it. It could somehow treat the social ills that were plaguing the city. You know, he took a moral argument that a park could lure citizens out of bars, you know, and the the (laughs) Bowery saloons and into a place of respite and of solitude and of nature. Make everyone a better person, generally. Right. He was pushing for a park that could be built between 68th Street and 77th Street from 3rd Avenue to the East River. Oh, okay. Not far from the current one. 
but it never materialized. However, less than a decade later, in 1851, the mayor at the time, Mayor Kingsland, was pushing for a similar park to be built on what's called Jones Wood, what was called Jones Wood. And this was Ambrose Kingsland, right? Exactly, Mayor Ambrose Kingsland. Now, Jones Wood was over between 66th and 75th Street, um, between what is now Park Avenue and the East River. So similar to the place where Bryant wanted to park. Exactly. Andrew Downing, who was the most famous landscape gardener in the U.S. and the editor of a horticultural magazine, he became a vocal critic of this whole plan, saying that Jones Wood was too small for a city that would you know, soon grow to be three-quarters of a million people large. And not only that, but opponents argued that it was just too far out of the way. I mean, it was way uptown, 66th to 75th and the East River, way over on the east side. And people who lived on the west side, well, they couldn't reach it. They also didn't see any benefit happening to their land values. That is true. One benefit of Central Park being smack dab in the middle of the park, everyone can get there from all different places, and the land, there's more, literally more land around it that can right. be worth a value. Right. And what do you know, but in the middle of the island, there is a big expanse of rocky and largely unusable land. Yes, swampy which land. Which yes. less valuable mm-hmm. as well. And thus, in 1852, a team of commissioners named by the city recommended that this patch of land in the center of the island be designated as Central Park. Okay. In 1853, the state declares that that territory uh, would be used for Central Park. In 1863, that would be extended up to 110th Street. Now, as you mentioned, right, it was central, so people could get to it. Um, And also, water was plentiful, you know, because... There were creeks bubbling up all over the place. And at this time, there was, in fact, there was uh, the Croton Reservoir there. Right. Uh, they, they had to build the park around it. Exactly. But there were significant disadvantages to the land, too, because it just didn't seem suitable. I mean, it was treeless. It was barren. It was run down and rocky. Uh, there were quarries, you know, about mm-hmm. the place. You didn't look at this territory and say, wow, that's going to be a fabulous, you know, <laughs> metropolitan park. It doesn't scream out that it's going to be a place of recreation for for anybody. No. And it was also too far away from anybody. You know, it was far away from the actual city that it was supposed to be serving because the city at that time only was developed up to 34th Street. So in the street, cor- you know, street cars pulled by horses and such, the public transportation only went up to 42nd Street. So that meant that there was still almost two miles to go, to go before you got up to this. They were kind of thinking ahead of themselves. And on top of that, Tom, I mean, we're talking like there's nobody here. But in fact, a lot of people live here. Well, you know, a, a couple thousand almost. It's poorer people, but it is outside the city. There, there are little shanty towns. There's Irish pig farmers, some even some German families. And most notably in this area, there's actually a small African-American village called Seneca Village. And it was at between 82nd and 89th Street around the East Avenue area. It had about 270 people there. I think they had a census. It was sizable. It had three churches. It had a school. I mean, it was a community of free black property owners. And it was founded in around 1825. So it was an actual town or a a community. There was a community there. So these essentially what the commissioners were doing was they're going to clear these people out so we can build a park. Well, park advocates were claiming that these people were squatters, you know, who were just 
camping out on other people's property. And I guess the reality is a little bit more complicated. Because- uh, uh, many of them owned their own land, but were just seen as or labeled as squatters because, of course, it would make it easier to sweep them away when they needed. And for some of the land, the land ownership wasn't even really known. So it was kind of a complicated It was, yeah, This wasn't going to be easy. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. So they've grabbed the land, and now they need to design it and build the the park. Mm -hmm. So the chief engineer named the project, a man named Egbert Viel, made his own design for the park, and Mm -hmm. he submitted it. However, Calvert Vox, an English architect. Yes, Calvert Vox. We've mentioned him a few times. Tell us about Calvert. Calvert Vox was a was a British architect, and as a matter of fact, he was convinced to move to the U- U.S. by Andrew Downing, who right. you had just mentioned. And in fact, which you're going to mention this person a little bit later, but at Downing's home up in Newburgh, New York, is where he would meet for the very first time Frederick Olmsted. Calvert Vox blasted Egbert Viel's design, saying that they were... Well, they lacked a central focal point, that they were crisscrossed with these ugly commercial roads, and that they were basically uninspired. So he pushed the engineer to actually hold a design competition, Mm -hmm. and 33 designs were submitted. The winner, get this, was Frederick Law Olmsted, who was American, and Calvert Vox, who had put a design together called the Greensward Plan. Uh Uh-huh. But tell me what you think of this. Olmsted was also appointed the park superintendent, and he was named the architect, and Vox was named his assistant. Well, so it seems like it's sort of an inside no, job. Well, they kind of, no, Olmsted had a lot of friends in powerful places. He was already pretty well known by this time. All right. Well, and I'm happy they picked Olmsted's. Oh, design. certainly. So Now, what, what exactly does this plan entail, the Greensward Plan? Well, Olmsted was familiar with the formal gardens of France and England, you know, and he wanted something different. He didn't want something terribly stuffy. He wanted something more natural. He wanted to work, as he said, with nature, not against it. So he envisioned rolling hills and manicured forests and lawns that would shield the visitors from the realities, the rough urban realities Mm -hmm. that were all around them. Because let's face it, we're all in a big bustling city enough as it is. We spend enough time in the city. It's nice 
place to escape to nature. So that was the plan. And so when you look at those original designs, so many things were intended to shield the visitors from that Mm -hmm. urban reality, which is why when you brought up the skyline poking in, that was not part of the original intention. Because at the time, of course, the trees and the hills were manicured and designed in a way that would block any kind of building Mm -hmm. like that. Vox even went so far as to come up with the idea of the east-west sunken passages, you know, for traffic so that carriages crossing the park would be hidden from view. And the designs really focused on nature. There were four buildings, only four, in the original plan. Uh Those structures were Belvedere Castle, Mm -hmm. the Bethesda Fountain, which you just mentioned, the Ladies' Refreshment House, and the Carousel. And then there's a great walk that's leading to the Bethesda Terrace Mm -hmm. called the Grand Promenade. That was designed also... It's kind of an artificial design, you know, not very natural, but it was designed as a place for people to mingle and to be seen. But at this point, it's all just a plan, and it's not realized at all. So... Back to the squatters, what happened? Well, I mean, how did we how did we end up with a park? Well, in 1853 is when the state authorized eminent domain so they couldn't grab up that land. And so out go the residents of Seneca Village, unfortunately, and out go all of those people who had homes there or people who maybe were legitimately squatters. And interestingly, Seneca Village was only recently dug up by arche- archaeologists in 2005. Oh, wow. So, I mean, it was obliterated when they did this. Construction began in the mid-1850s and employed about 20,000 men who you know, worked an average of a 10-hour workday. The, the people who actually were the workers, the people who made Central Park, were mostly Irish and German immigrants, many of them from Five Points, believe it wow. or not. Some of the uh, nativist versus immigrant battles sort of came alive here because a lot of people thought that only you know Native Americans, as in like people who were born here, right. should be working in the park. So there was always that sort of conflict going through the whole thing. Of the Irish that worked there, they mostly focused on the construction jobs because that was sort of an easy way to sort of move up the ladder. Unbelievably, I find this quite incredible, there were no black workers hired. For, the, for this entire park of the 20,000 men, and there were no women for anything except for to clean the offices. <laughs> so it was really like the brawn of manly men from, you know, the Irish and German manly men, essentially, were who built the park. So here's some figures I'm throwing out to you. They basically disrupted 2.5 million cubic yards of stone and earth. 166 tons of gunpowder were used. That's more than at the Battle of Gettysburg. <laughs> Six million bricks, 35 barrels of cement, 65 cubic yards of gravel. I mean, all just a massive amount of materials going in and out. The trickiest part of building this area was drainage because this was some swampy ground. There were even underground pools that had to be drained. And, you know, it's a lot of the what was terrible about it lurked under the surface. It Here we are again at this eternal podcast question of how to drain swampy Swamp. land. It seems like every podcast we're bringing that up now, doesn't it? So what they did is they had to, um, they placed these pipes about like four feet deep throughout the whole part of the park and this drained all the water out. In six months alone, they laid 20 miles of underground pipe. It's funny, by 1858, so just a few years later after they had just begun, they had some parts of it open. The lake they were able to complete so that by December of 1858, people actually begin ice skating there. You actually know that famous picture where the, you see the Dakota apartments in the background and people are ice skating? Right, that was sort actually, of standing on its own with nothing else 
around it. Those are actually pictures of some of the very first people enjoying Central Park. So the park wasn't even officially opened. No, what would happen is the park would open in bits. People would just go as things were finished. You know, there wasn't, there's not exactly like, it wasn't like they could just cordon it off and people (laughs) had to go in at once. It didn't quite work like that. Mm. Uh, Some of the other kind of interesting things that happened with the construction is what I would call this rock sculpting. How the land was at there at the time, I guess you could describe it as being rather unesthetic, you know, very uneven segments of rock, things that didn't fit these pastoral beauty that Olmsted and Vox really wanted. So places like Sheep's Meadow were literally sculpted out of rock inch by inch. So as it looks today, so wavy and peaceful. And so you can just lay your picnic blanket on there. But it was all done by workers to create those even hills. It didn't look like that before. In fact, it was a bog filled with rocks and that had to be dynamited out and then covered with topsoil. (laughs) Well, if it had been more like it is today, then people, more people would have probably settled on it. In 1859, they actually got permission to extend the park up to 110th Street. It took a few years to actually get that land. It took, it was not until 1863 when they actually started. This area, though, by this time, they didn't have as much money. So, you know how it looks a a little bit more, shall we say, naturalistic up there. Rustic. <laughs> a little rustic. Part of that is that they just couldn't execute these sort of elaborate designs that they had done in the park. Mm. These financial and political woes were going on by the 1860s. Olmsted, of course, was having these conflicts with various commissioners. So he was essentially shipped off on vacation. And while he was away, the board of commissioners by the name of Andrew Green sort of took over his job a little bit and sort of dictating things to him. Olmsted even attempted to resign, but he was seen as such the face of the project that they couldn't have this public scandal of him leaving. It. So he couldn't leave, but they had taken away some of his power. His out was the Civil War. Um, he eventually went down to Washington, D.C. to sort of help with the, with the war effort. He would correspond with Vox and the other commissioners, but essentially by this point, that he was not there. He had moved on to other projects. By 1863, everything below um, 102nd Street was open to the public, but the park itself wasn't actually finished. There's still a lot of things in the park that needed to be done. For instance, in 1865 is when Vox designed the castle, the little Belvedere Castle. And Vox, it's so interesting, Vox was actually the one who designed these buildings, too. He wasn't just designing landscapes, he was designing miniature castles. Part of the joy of what he wanted the castle to be like is, you know, it's right next to the Rambles, which is the the narrow paths and, like, big, thick brush. And so this was supposed to be a reward. You burst out onto the castle, this very fairy tale place. He also designed around this time the dairy which really did provide milk for children back mm-hmm. then right by the, by this time people are pouring already into the park it's immediately people love it obviously no one had really seen anything quite like this as originally planned this was a place where the upper class could take their carriages and ride very peacefully and hang out with other people of the upper class well which begs the question of course whose park is is Central Park. The debate over who Central Park's intended audience was was raging from the very beginning, from the from the first ideas of creating a new park in the city. Well, think about when the, how you think of a park today. You right. think of it as a place where you can see anybody in the city. It's for everybody. Right. It is a democratic 
space for people to go to, but that's not really what parks were sort of intended to be in the 19th century. Right. Here, or if you compare them to Europe, to the beautiful, small, stately parks in Paris, there's an aristocratic feel to most of those parks. And here in New York City at the time, there were several different debates. Now, high society wanted a more genteel park. They wanted it for their own reasons, to promenade about, to show off their carriages, as you mentioned and to also escape the masses of people who were hoarding now around Fifth Avenue. Mm -hmm. You know, the fancies wanted to be in their own little place. So contrasting with the high society argument was the virtuous argument, like Mm -hmm. I already mentioned with William Cullen Bryant, who who said that that a park would be a place to transform the newly arrived immigrants into into hardworking citizens, virtuous. Well, this wasn't a place where, at this particular point, this wasn't a place where people gathered to play games or relax. It was to convene with nature. And And that's, that's exactly what Olmsted put in his plan from the beginning. He balanced those two philosophies and came up with his more naturalistic argument, which is that Central Park would be a place to observe and respect nature. And he wanted really nature to be observed and respected above all else. It Uh was nature first and culture second. And that guided really the development of the early park and also the visitors of the early park. You know, he didn't really have very much faith in the early visitors either. He didn't think that people knew how to behave in a park or that <laughs> lower classes necessarily knew how to behave, that there needed to be strictly enforced rules and regulations. And so, yeah, and certainly there's certainly some people don't know how to behave in a park. <laughs> Still but, today. But he just assumed that nobody did, really, except for the most educated And overwhelmingly, the most frequent visitors to the park in the early days were the richest. In fact, I found a statistic here that Mm -hmm. more than half of the early visitors from 1859 to 1869 arrived by carriage. Okay. (laughs) Now, who had a carriage? It, at that time, only 5% of New Yorkers had carriages. I wonder what 5% that would be. So it was about money and access, but also about location. Because think of all of the you know the immigrants living on the Lower East Side and downtown. Right. Central Park is really far away. And in contrast to where the rich were moving up at this time, because they were moving uptown right. with every decade. They were moving to a na- new neighborhood where it would be around Union Square, and then right. it would be up to 34th Street. And they, they were all, everyone was just moving uptown. So by so, 1860, they were, they were getting closer and closer and closer to Central Park and right. to the eastern side. And Also, though, just a side note, many of the people arriving in the city were Ireland and from Germany and from cultures where large gatherings were part of the social norm, where people would get together and have big picnics or some concerts together in large groups. One of the things that Olmsted prohibited in his park were these very large gatherings. Oh, right. It was supposed to be a park for individuals to go and contemplate nature. Well, there weren't even any places to get to gather large groups. No, in the and park it, at this it time. was forbidden, and music was forbidden. Concerts were forbidden on Sundays, on the Sabbath. So this was just another way of sort of inadvertently discouraging the lower and working classes from coming up to the park. And on top of it, many of the people of the lower classes had six-day work weeks and could only go to the park on Sundays, and yet they had these restrictions on Sundays. We will see that many of these restrictions were soon relaxed in Central Park. But at the time of its opening, they were in full force. Mm -hmm. A lot of changes happened to the park in the late 19th century that would have surprised Olmsted and were not originally part of his plan. And you, listener 
We'll hear all about them next week when you get to our part two of Central Park. There's This is really one of those topics that if we had even attempted to put all this into one show, we, we might just pass out in the middle of it and you just have a bunch of dead air. But some of the uh, things to look forward to in next week's podcast, the change from this upper class, polite, little naturalistic place to one of gigantic public places covered in concrete, huge gatherings of people, peace protests, lots of crime. I'll tell you about the first beer served in Central Park. And of course, what podcast is <laughs> is complete without Robert Moses? He's coming to Central Park. So thank you for listening to part one, the creation of Central Park. Log on to BoweryBoysPodcast.com to check out some early Central Park etchings, plans, and photographs. We will be back here next week with part two of our episode. So thank you very much for listening. And we have a lot of new listeners out there. Thank you for jumping aboard. It's great to have you. And as always, if you like what you're listening to, why not log into iTunes and write a quick little review? It takes about 30 seconds. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you next week.